Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis. Joining me this week to discuss the end of the HBO series The Leftovers, co-created by Damon Lindelof and Tom Perotta, based on Perotta's 2011 book of the same name, is Zoe Jays returning to the show. Zoe is the comedy programmer at King's Place in London and also the producer of the London politics festival and the london podcast festival hi zoe how are you hi ed i'm good thanks um i should apologize to you and your listeners that um the sound quality might not be great which is entirely my fault uh it's fine like i've listened to and certainly put out plenty of podcasts that don't have (laughs) the absolute best sound quality we over the course of this show we have put out multiple episodes where one of us just didn't realize their microphone wasn't plugged in Uh, (laughs) okay well let's just pretend that that's what happened (laughs) okay we'll retcon this Um, (laughs) that that's the explanation now so yes like like i said you are the producer of the london podcast festival the first of which was held last year i uh, flew over and had a great time saw a lot of really good shows and got to catch up with a lot of people which was really lovely but the second one is coming up in uh, September, so I just wanted to talk to you about what you've got planned for year two of the London Podcast Festival. Cool, yeah, so the London Podcast Festival is coming back for uh, a second year. Um, it's this September the 13th to the 17th. Um, we've got some returning favourites. Last year, um, uh, the Maximum Fun Network came over. Uh, Jesse Thorne brought some of uh, my favourite Max Fun shows, um, including Judge John Hodgman, uh, mm. back again. Uh, this year we've also got Jordan Jesse Go. We've got the Beef and Dairy Network, um, so that's brilliant. A new network that I'm very excited about is Radiotopia, are bringing five shows to the London Podcast Festival, which is which is amazing. Um, and the US uh, shows that they're bringing haven't ever done any live shows over here before, so really excited to have Criminal uh, and the Memory Palace make their their UK debuts. Uh, Benjamin Walker is also bringing his show and. The Illusionist is back, and Helen is bringing her brother this time, so we've also got The Bugle, which is wonderful. A few of the other same big names, uh, my dad wrote a porno, uh, are back, which is amazing. Uh, The Complete Guide to Everything, my my good friends Tim and Tom are coming back. Uh, Adam Buxton's doing it this year, which is really exciting. The Football Ramble, we've got a few magazines doing it. Uh, Empire Magazine are are doing their podcast, which is really exciting. Really thrilled that, that Chris Hewitt and the team are, are coming down and hopefully they'll get some amazing guests. Uh, Little White Lies are also doing their podcast, Ed, so a couple of good film ones there for you. Yep. Glamour are also doing their, their show. Uh, the Guilty Feminist, and I'm sure loads more things I've forgotten, but uh, another really exciting lineup. Um, Something I can give you a bit of a exclusive on because uh, <laughs> it will be announced uh, by the time this goes out is that we are also launching something called uh, London Podcast Festival Presents. The first, okay. the first of those will be the Saturday before the London Podcast Festival. And this year, it's uh, London Podcast Festival Presents Wrestling. So ah. <laughs> I'm going to have six wrestling-themed podcasts over the course of a very exciting day. Yeah, so that's something new and different, and the lineup for that will be will be up on Monday. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm really looking forward to. Well, I, I won't be able to be there for the the resting stuff. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to because that'll be before I fly in. But I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing the bugle live. 
and uh, a bunch of the other stuff. I, I saw Judge John Hodgman last year and uh, that show was uh, was wonderful. So hopefully I'll get to go and uh, see him again. Well, he's, he, and he's just an absolute dream as well. Um, just the nicest guy. That's such awful showbiz talk, but he really is. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's fine. There's not enough showbiz and glamour on this show, so <laughs> you, you really do provide it. that. Okay, so uh, we're talking about The Leftovers, which, for those who don't know, is a show that started in 2014 on HBO in the US, and I'm guessing probably Sky in the UK will probably show it. And uh, the, the basic premise or the, the inciting incident of The Leftovers was that a percentage of the world's population just up and disappeared one day. I think it's 2%? 2%, yeah, that's right, yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty like, not a huge percentage, but like a, sh- a shitload of people <laughs> just up and disappeared one day in a rapture-like event, which then, and then the, the series is about the aftermath of that, of people trying to pick up their lives in a world in which a cataclysmic, inexplicable event has taken place. And over the course of its three seasons, the show, which uh, started as a very bleak, meditation on grief and kind of remained that to an extent throughout but as it went along it became a wildly ambitious often very funny show that kind of tried a lot of different things and played around with genres and used its kind of great ensemble cast to great effect so uh so i guess the first question uh, for you zoe is when did you start watching the show um so my relationship with the leftovers started when i was in Boston, visiting my older brother in America, and I had run out of books, so I went Uh to their local bookshop, and um, I, obviously I'm a big fan of election, Mm. because everyone is, and I like little children very much as well, so I hadn't heard of The Leftovers, but I saw the novel, um, and I read the back, and as you say, the, The Sudden Departure is the most intriguing of premises, and I thought, if anyone can do this, in an interesting way because I think you're always a bit kind of tempted to watch those films like Left Behind and stuff because it's because <laughs> it's a cool concept but you don't want all all the religious gump so uh I I read it and I think it was one of those books that I just read in a day yeah and I really loved it so when I heard that um that they were making a, a series of it and not only was it going to be that Tom Perotta was going to be heavily involved but that he was doing it with Damon Lindelof I just thought that was the most incredible and exciting thing um, so yeah, I started watching season one straight away with a lot of a lot of anticipation. I only started watching it after the second season had started airing because oh, everyone said it was really good. I I think I'd I'd been excited about the first season, but by the time I kind of had time to sit and watch it, the kind of critical response was, "Yeah, it's really good, but also it's super depressing." And yeah. I was like, mm, I'm not sure if I have the room to just kind of be bummed out for ten hours. Uh, and then the second season came out and it suddenly kind of seemed to climb the uh, echelons to be one of the best uh, best shows on TV. I thought, OK, I can't I can't ignore this now. So yeah. I, I blazed through the first two seasons uh, and then so kind of was and then read the book um, just ahead of season three coming out. So I was all up to date and ready for the third season to start, which uh, ended up being one of my highlights of the year so far in uh, TV terms. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of my highlights, um, my, my TV highlights of all time, I think, season three of The Leftovers. I think mm. uh, one of the most extraordinary and bold pieces of television I've ever seen. Um, I 
I think had I not read the reviews for season two, I might not have watched it. Yeah. Season one, I enjoyed, and mm-hmm. and I do think it's a it's it's a very well made piece of television. But having read the novel, I think um, it 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 was disappointing, and I think some of the stuff that they the way they played around with, with the format and did some of the reveals just didn't work for me because I, you know, at the end of the first episode, they reveal that, that Laurie is Kevin's wife. Mm. And I think if you already know that, there's not a lot to the first episode. Yeah, that's a good point. It is kind of just an hour of being introduced to all these disparate characters. And then at the end, suddenly it's like, oh, they're interconnected. But then, you know, it's kind of like the first episode of Modern Family. Once you realise all those people are related, that part of it is like, oh, <laughs> Oh, you just don't need oh, to okay. watch any of it ever again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it was a uh, first season. I think the only episode of it which I, I kind of thought was really kind of as good as the show would eventually become and the thing that made me keep watching when I was kind of slogging through the first season was Guest, which is the first episode to focus on the character of Nora Durst, uh-huh. played uh, brilliantly by, by Carrie Coon, giving probably one of the best performances I've ever seen in a TV show, where... It takes her out of Mapleton, New York, where most of the action takes place, and sends her to uh, Manhattan, where she goes to a conference of people who kind of deal with people who have disappeared and things like that. And she gets there and finds out that someone else has already taken her name tag. And the whole thing kind of proceeds from there of her being just seen as a guest, no one knowing who she is, and the sense of dislocation she gets as a result of essentially having no identity which is like a really great self-contained episode of television, uh, which is why it probably works so well compared to the rest of the season, which has its highs, but is never that kind of cohesive. Yeah, I mean, that's also the start of the the Kevin-Nora romance, isn't it? Which Mm, becomes the the heart of the show, really. I think people would say that the the Matt episode in a similar vein is is also a highlight. Um, He's... Matt's Matt's probably a slightly less compelling character than than Nora, um, mm. and there is a problem with Christopher Eccleston's accent, which I never, I can never quite get over. I do really like. I think it's the penultimate episode where you, where you see, um, where you see what happened leading up to October the fourteenth, yeah. and specifically um, the reveal that the Garveys did lose something, you know, mm-hmm. the possibility of this child, even though they didn't lose a family member. Yeah. And that Kevin was being unfaithful. I, I think that, that, oh, and Patty, actually, Patty's really interesting in that episode. Yes. Patty played by, uh, Anne Dowd is mm. really fantastic. There's almost a sense that, that Patty knows something's coming, <laughs> you know, no one else does. Mm. Um, which perhaps is why Laurie's so keen to follow her in the aftermath. Yeah, I think there's there, there are very kind of strong elements, and, and I think the Matt character is one of the things I find really compelling about the changes that Prater and Lindelof made, mm-hmm. which is that in the book, Matt, you know, who is who is a very religious man, who then spends all of his time creating like these newsletters that he hands out saying that all the people who disappeared were terrible and kind of spreading everyone's dirty laundry out into the into the public space in the in the book uh he's kind of presented as a man who's pretty much completely lost his faith and it seems kind of completely broken by it whereas in the the show he becomes more zealous as it goes along as a result of it and i think 
that was a a subtle but very kind of smart choice in terms of how his character then progresses over the rest of the show because he becomes more you know he is driven to do kind of crazy things because of the things his belief has become stronger and more devout as he's gone along yeah matt becomes a lot well everyone i think becomes a lot more interesting once they're freed from the shackles of the novel um, yeah i almost yeah it, it's almost a shame that they had to do season one at all if they should have just told everyone to read it and then gone we're just expanding on that universe i think having to retread that story um mm. perhaps in a way that doesn't work so well on tv i mean because now it feels like a lifetime ago that we had that we had to care about holy wayne you know <laughs> yeah but that yeah. just feels like like nothing compared to what what the show became yeah, as, as nice as it was to see Patterson Joseph in something. I know, I, you know I, I'd almost completely forgotten he was in it. <laughs> season one feels yeah. like a, a lifetime ago, which, which considering it's only three seasons of <laughs> two ten-episode runs and one seven-episode run, is, is amazing. And you can just to think about, like, Justin Theroux in, like, that first season, and he's just kind of, like, for the most part, just an everyman... I mean, and every man who goes out and shoots dogs at night. But other than that, you know, mm-hmm. he's not he's not the most exciting of characters. I don't think I started watching this show going, wow, this is such a career renaissance for Justin Theroux. But yeah. I remember, he's now, on the basis of this show alone, one of my favourite actors. Yeah, he, I think a lot of the, the his mode in the first season seems to be summed up by one of the promotional images. And I think it's the image on like the DVD covers, <laughs> which is just him punching a wall. <laughs> And it's just kind of like it's so melodramatic and he's so tortured and everything like that and and as the show goes on it's not like he gets over like the terrible things that happens but he does become a more textured character but there's kind of a the bluntness of that image seems to correspond with the the bluntness of how his character is written in the first year and and how he kind of plays it because there isn't they don't give him a lot of notes to play do we ever find out i mean i don't remember do we ever find out what he wished for at the end of season one? You know, like, doesn't Holy Wayne grant him a wish? He does. I don't remember. I, I think that may have been something that was never revealed. Yeah, well, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I suppose, we, are we supposed to presume it's, it's, it's the baby because the baby then turns up? Yeah, I would assume so. Okay. That he, or he wants some kind of, he wants his family back or something yeah. like that. Or, or a family. And uh, he ends up with kind of a, a patchwork one which kind of works um but yeah also in in terms of the show i think the second season which shifts the action from mapleton new york to the town of jardin in texas which is the the only place in the world seemingly that didn't lose anyone in the sudden departure i think that was really bold in part first because like obviously the idea of you just completely change the location of your show at the beginning of the second season is something that you would not expect a show to do because you're ripping the the you're you're ripping the the rug out from everyone mm-hmm. but it did allow them to kind of trim off all of the characters who maybe had been a bigger part of the model like uh the daughter's best friend who doesn't show up again after the first season yeah amy yeah yeah and they just kind of get rid of all of those and that's the point in which you feel like like you say they, they broke away from the shackles of it and they say okay we're going in a, our own new direction now and yeah. it becomes very lindelof so much so that <laughs> it starts with a flashback to primor to primordial earth and like a woman giving birth in caveman times which is a very kind of lost thing to do 
Yeah, I think that's probably my favourite ten minutes of the show. I don't think... I mean, season two as a whole is certainly... It is wonderful. Season three mm. pops it. But I think, as I said, after I got to the end of season one and I was debating whether to watch season two or not. I was curious, but I wasn't excited about it in the same way I had been um, before I'd seen season one. And then... Um, the critical response was very good to the first episode, so I was like, okay, I'll watch it. And I was I was blown away by it, to the point where I've shown people who've n- never seen any of The Leftovers that 10 minutes, mm-hmm. because I think it's it's just one of the best short films I've ever seen, and you don't need to have watched the rest of The Leftovers to appreciate, you know, that, that, that dialogue-free, incredibly emotionally affecting, beautiful 10 minutes of filming. It's incredible. Yeah, I feel like that and the two episodes that take place in in kind of the limbo world, International Assassin and the Most Powerful Man in the World and his identical twin brother, which Mm -hmm. is probably my favourite name of any episode. (laughs) Uh, It's just such a wonderful um, collection of words and particularly the use of parentheses. Yeah. It's very nice. Or brackets, as we call them in the UK, Ed. Yeah. I've I've been here a long time. I start to drop... T's turn into D's. You can't, you can't fight it. You Parenthesis fight it. is much more elegant. That's one that I'll give the, the US. <laughs> yeah, one of the few times they've made a word more elegant. Usually just kind of sand it down. <laughs> but, but yeah, like those two episodes, because they're so disconnected from the main narrative and they are their own kind of... They are very much their own thing and operate on their own rules that have nothing to do directly with the main show. I think those two that you could just show to people and say... Okay, this is atypical, but yes. don't you want to see a show that could do something as weird as this? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the although the, the start of series three was uh, thematically more tied, perhaps, to the show as a whole, um, mm. it, it just wasn't quite as, as jaw-dropping because we'd seen them do it before. And, yeah. and it didn't have the, the raw power of the opening of season two, which you kind of needed to have a bit of a break before you actually watch the show. <laughs> it's a real, yeah. it's a real punch to the stomach. And, and season three also kind of eases you into it a little bit more. Like the fact the action is going to move to Australia. You do get a yeah. little bit that sort of two or three episodes, which still stay in Texas before everyone decides they're going to go to Australia. Yeah. So it, yeah. So it's not suddenly as jarring as, Hey, by the way, here's a woman giving birth in Stone Age times, and also the show is in a different part of the country now. <laughs> and you have all of these new characters to meet up. And by the way, the old characters you know aren't showing up until the last ten minutes, <laughs> which is all so brilliant from a from a writing perspective in terms of what you would expect a TV show in its second year to do. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not an expert on filmmaking by any uh, degree, but the whole way. Everything about the show feels different in in Jordan. Um, you know, just everything about the the texture and the color of it feels completely different. And and even the opening credits, like that's a big shift. The mm. first season had those, uh, you know, those kind of murals of people being taken away and fighting each other and hitting each other and all of this sort of stuff set to the kind of the music that I now think of just in terms of Doughboys. Yeah, me too. <laughs> because I think they may have used it more than the leftovers actually did. I think they have. Yeah, that kind of like really dramatic, melodramatic string music that they played over it. And then the second one, uh, they set it to the song Let the Mystery Be by Irish Dement, mm. which is like just this kind of peppy pop song about saying, 
which uh, the folk song essentially about saying, "Hey, who knows what happens when we die?" Yeah, let's just kind of see what happens. I think it's a bit of a fuck you to the audience from Lindelof as well. He's like, "I'm probably not going to explain all of this to you, so just get over it." Yeah, that is about as direct as he could have gone, really, I suppose. Uh, But then, like, they changed the the credits as well to have be a montage of photos of people where one one or two people have been removed because they've disappeared, Mm. which is is nice because it also calls back to I think. Uh, the book which has I think it's in in Matt's um, Matt's newsletter he has like photos where he's like badly photoshopped people out of them like whenever he sends them out so it's kind of a nice tie to the text while at the same time saying yeah we're going in a different way now this show isn't as bleak as you think it is we're going to start with this kind of sunshiny imagery and this kind of peppy music that you can kind of nod your head to and and Jarlan is, is it feels like a warmer more inviting place at least to start with yes <laughs> yeah and then as it goes along the, the the mystery of the show and the question of what happened to the three girls who disappeared kind of uh, makes it kind of darker and everyone kind of turns inwards which is you know what the show is in, on one level is investigating how people respond to tragic events and grief and like that's something that even in the first season it's really great in which they use this large ensemble to explore like many different reactions some people like Nora who I relate to because her response to terrible things happening is the same as me which is to just keep working and hope that things Mm. (laughs) things sort themselves out yeah or Kevin who kind of goes more inwards Matt becomes more religious as does uh, Laurie, obviously, who joins the Guilty Remnant and, and kind of tries to find some solace in their more uh, kind of nihilistic approach to everything. Um, and then in the second scene, you know, that is that is basically what happens with um, everyone in Jardin starts to kind of turn on each other. Yeah, and, 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 and Meg, who's an interesting character, who's sort of raging at the at the world. And I do wonder whether if it hadn't... If, it, if Meg hadn't been played by Liv Tyler, whether they would have included her... Um, mm. Post season one, but there is something, there is something I really like about Meg. <laughs> yeah, she is a really compelling villain yeah. in the sense that she has a motivation that you can kind of understand. And her, when you get like the flashbacks to her mother dying the day before the great disappearance yeah. and things like that, and the her, she was already in a very dark headspace, and then this terrible thing happened to everyone else which kind of overwhelmed her personal tragedy and things like that and then how that drives her yeah onwards there's, uh, there's, there is a, there's a compelling yeah there's something very compelling about the the abject cruelty of the guilty remnant in, in mm. their determination to do what they think is right but um you know it, it's not it's not dissimilar to um what's the the most hated family in america speaking of the ruse um uh, yeah the um the Westboro Westboro yeah. Baptist Church yeah that you can be so horribly cruel you know but you think but for everyone else is good I mean the the replay I mean that's back to season one again but one that's one of the better moments in season one is uh putting those um dummies in everyone's houses yeah it is like you say it's just such a cruel and horrible thing to do to people uh, and the town's reaction of just smashing everything yeah. up is yeah. is logical. Yeah, the Westboro Baptist Church better watch out. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, that is that is the the culmination of of season one ending with that. Even though you then get the kind of the real slightly melodramatic thing of 
Laurie like screaming at Kevin, she's in the house and it's on fire and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, like... yeah. It's not it's not perfect by any means. And then of course, uh, Meg is 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 central to the the plan that is revealed in season two, mm. um, which I don't think I saw coming either. No, yeah, I totally thought because there's there's two possible. You think oh they're going to set off a bomb and blow off this bridge, and then no, like they're just going to reveal the three girls, and then all of the all of the the guilty remnant will just advance on the city on mass and kind of destroy not destroy it like physically but kind of like shatter the image of this perfect place that's uh, everyone has built it up as you know miracle national park and everything yeah and that's very much the 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 narrative arc of the, the series and it ties into everything that Matt's doing as well and um what's happening on the outskirts of the town which is which is also really brilliantly done and feels very mm. different to everything inside the town again it feels in how it's shot there's 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 a different sense to it but much like season one i suppose the the big standout episodes are the ones that divert somewhat from the main plot of the show yes the uh the matt episode no room at the inn yeah is especially good where it's all about him trying to because his wife played by janelle baloney becomes catatonic i think at the end of the first season yeah yeah uh, and then, so, but she wakes up one day and they kind of have a day together and they have sex and she becomes pregnant. Yeah. And then the next, then she remains completely catatonic for the rest of the time. So he tries to kind of recreate that day and it's all about his, it's all about his devotion to his wife and trying to get her to wake up again, as well as the completely understandable responses of everyone else to this guy with a catatonic wife who's yeah yeah just admit that you raped her yeah yeah which is uh and then him as just feeling ostracized and like he's a crazy person because that's all anyone can kind of see and they can't realistic yeah obviously for, for good reason they can't accept his version of events which is uh played really really well uh and then the other one is international assassin which is the one where kevin does he drown himself in that one, or does he? I think I he takes what, what poison, doesn't he? Doesn't um, hmm? uh, doesn't John take him out to see? Oh, that and then guy he in the woods, him. and he gives him poison. Yes, yeah, he gives him poison, and then he dies, and then goes to this limbo land where he's in a hotel room, and he's presented with a selection of suits of clothes to put on, and he puts on a suit, and then suddenly he's told he's an international assassin, and everyone ben, has tried to kill him. <laughs> and it's incredible. It's such a a complete left turn for the show but it feels so good because like Justin Thoreau does such a great he's so so great at playing this guy who is like you say for the most of the season he's just been kind of an everyman who happens to be essentially immortal because he always comes back to life he's the captain scarlet of the of the leftovers world but he's presented he's now in this completely insane situation and he's trying to kind of cope with it uh and it's yeah, it's such a brilliant episode of television. Yeah, the notion of insanity in The Leftovers is is really interesting because you feel in in the first season and perhaps um perhaps it, it was the intent in the novel, I don't know, but you feel like we're supposed to think that Kevin Senior is mad, that he's actually yeah. mad, and that Kevin perhaps might be slowly going mad. Mm. And there's the question of whether Dean is real and everything, but it's all it's all much more domestic. And then by yeah. the time we get to season two it becomes a lot less clear, you know, whether, whether these things are really happening or not. Yeah, because he's being haunted by the 
ghost of of Patty, Patty yeah. the ghost of Patty, who's constantly talking to him, and you know, it seems to be putting him in the, in harm's way all the time, or at least yeah. is wryly commenting on the fact that he's always in harm's way. And certainly, Nora seems to think that that, that means he's mad and doesn't yeah. trust him around the kids, understandably so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, everyone in the show has very reasonable reactions, <laughs> uh, except Kevin, who decides to to go off into the woods and take poison and go yeah. into some kind of a nether world to kill Patty as a child. Yes, that's how it ends up, doesn't it? it uh, yeah. Although at a certain point he's faced with her as playing a politician. Yeah, she... and she's a decoy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very strange plot, but it's, it's amazing. Like, it's... I think it's just probably not worth analysing the plot of International Assassin. I'm sure there are people who watch the leftovers multiple times and have really worked out the minutiae of what's going on in that episode um mm. my main reaction to what it was that was amazing <laughs> yeah. i loved it yeah it was the same for me because even though i went in hearing people talk about it like i'd seen the, the the phrase international assassin thrown around and people saying it was a great episode i was not prepared for it to, no. be, to be just this reality bending thing that was also just like a hugely enjoyable spy movie essentially for an hour yeah i think what uh, also with the international assassin episode and also the the later one one of the things i really like about the supernatural elements is that they are deployed in the show for because they're exciting and they can be fun and, and thrilling to watch but they're also they also serve, serve kind of an emotional purpose in the case of this netherworld that kevin keeps going to um as the show goes on and particularly in the third season you realize he uses it as an escape like in the first episode where he's trying to suffocate himself with a plastic yeah. bag and it becomes his way of dealing with the world is to constantly kill himself and to awaken in this kind of world where he is powerful and has agency. And I think that one of the interesting things about the structure of the show is the first two seasons consist largely of these characters passively accepting that something terrible has happened and then just trying to kind of trudge along and then the third season pretty much every character is actively trying to do something about it and that takes different forms but i think that's one of the things that really sets the third season apart and also seems to track the arc of all the characters as well as they're trying to reach some point of grace or acceptance over the things that have happened to them yeah yeah that's interesting that um i that, that, that you think he's, he's going there more often. I, I sort of just assumed because we didn't see it, mm. that one, um, there may be some element of kink to all of this, and two, that he's, that he's testing the boundaries of, of, of the ways in which he is immortal. Mm. Um, because I think he's quite, well, he's obviously quite freaked out about it. Yeah. Um, and, and doesn't really want to be the second coming. Yeah. Um, and is annoyed by Matt suggesting that he that he might be, but I think yeah he's he's also keen to see how far he can push it. Mm. And I think he also it's it's such a lonely thing for him as well because he has this incredible ability that absolutely no one else in the world has seemingly, or at least no one he knows has. So he has to make it this thing he does in private these tests, which is why when Nora first comes across it, you know, he can't exactly be 
honest with her about why he was trying to suffocate himself. Oh, I should just say he was having a work. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, just the usual, the usual explanation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but that, that then filters into her questioning whether or not after a second season in which he seemed to be mentally unravelling in front of her and she thinks, oh, he seems fine now. He's back as the chief of police. In yeah. In town. He's fine. But now you kind of encounter him doing this and you think is something deeply wrong that uh, was a him. lovely reveal. Yeah, after an episode where you did think everything... I mean, although there's still a lot of crazy shit going on, um, mm. you know, in, in the town, uh, you, you you did feel like they'd reached a state of, of, of equilibrium and that, that Lee's family life seemed very happy um, for yeah. this odd extended family that they'd made together. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very effective way, it's Kevin suffocating himself, of, of telling us that that's not exactly true um mm. i thought it was a really good a really solid start to the second series but then after the third series but then episode two is just again just completely amazing um mm. what it's episode two that starts with the perfect stranger theme tune right yes I yeah mean, it is i i i nearly wet myself i couldn't believe it <laughs> <laughs> and that's that was also funny because i rewatched season one um as season three was airing, it was really funny to see that there is a there's a moment when I think Kevin is having a dream and he sees his dad in the like old the the mental hospital that he's in and he's watching Perfect Strangers. Oh really? Uh, and it was one of those things where I kind of thought this is either some really deep setup or they really kind of picked up on one minor detail and decided to bring in uh, Mark Lynn Baker for 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 kind of shits and for giggles. Yeah. But it was. It was really, really funny to see that. I'd like to think that it was intentional. I think it probably... Oh, well, maybe it wasn't intentional. I can't... I don't know. But you feel like if it wasn't planned from the start, like they didn't include Perfect Strangers in season one thinking we're going to do this at some point later on in the show, like Mark yeah. Lee is the, the exact level of ridiculousness we need to, to make this storyline work. <laughs> um, if not, perhaps they just went... Well, they thought, right, we need a, a, a celebrity... You know, what things have we referenced over the last two seasons? And there can't be that many things in yeah. a show like this. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of sitcom referencing. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of pop culture in general, but yeah, it was fun that they they tagged that onto it and then gave him a scene with with uh, Carrie Coon, which was like very intense. Play completely you know. straight. Yeah, um, but with the, the added absurdity it. that it's sitcom star Mark Lynn Baker yeah. talking to her about all this stuff, and that he's the, and that he's playing himself, and that his that his situation mirrors hers exactly, except it's ridiculous because he's talking <laughs> about the fact that the rest of the cast of the sitcom have disappeared, and in her case, it's her entire family. I don't think they could have picked something better. It was it was so brilliant. Yeah, I think that. Th- that's like I say. That's kind of like the the Lindelof ethos seems to be try pretty much everything and see what works. And I think the fact that the show had a lot of turnover between the first and second season in the writing staff and also the second and third season because they had a fairly long break between them. Yeah, I think probably helped revitalize it because I think you do get a lot more people in who now have seen what the show became in season two and perhaps more willing to kind of throw out crazy ideas to them. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question with, you know, is, is this what Lindelof does when he's given, you know, genuine creative freedom rather than mm. um, 
a limited amount of freedom within, you know, quite a, quite a set structure. And, and it just makes me wish more TV shows had shorter runs. Um, mm. It makes me wish that, that Lost had three seasons with the final one being seven episodes. Yeah, I think that you can see that in just the fact that, that Lost, when they decided they were going to end it after the third season and they said, OK, we're going to do three more seasons and they're going to be shorter and punchier you could really see the focus kind of came into effect and you don't get any more Jack's tattoos episodes. Things become a little more kind of streamlined and it did get, you know, kind of more ambitious. That's when you start to see time travel being introduced and stuff like that. And that does seem to be the case with him when he's given a little more, uh, when he's given freedom to do what he likes, but also he knows he's working towards a definite end point. Uh, he seems to thrive in that situation. Whereas the the grind of twenty two episodes of television every year uh, seemed really draining uh, from from kind of how Lost became a little bit more turgid as it went along. Yeah, and he had the, there are some moments in the in the series where you feel like he had the opportunity to do a deliberate fuck you to you know people who've criticised his work on Lost. I mean, he seems to get the brunt of it, oddly. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't hear people talking about Carton Coos as much as I do Damon Lindelof. Maybe it's because of the, the other stuff he's done as well. I don't know. Maybe he's just, like, a more obvious punching bag. But uh, the Nora's tattoo episode <laughs> um, is, is, is much better. It's a much better, better backstory than, than Jack's tattoo. And he himself joked about that on Instagram, I want to say. Yeah, he posted... He posted, I think, a clip of of the episode, and he did say, "Now that's how you tell a story about a tattoo." Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it was great. It was like deeply emotional and made sense, and wasn't just, "Oh, this actor has a tattoo. Maybe we should explain why he has it." It's like again, you don't need to do that. <laughs> and again, such so like a like a such a funny choice for the, you know, for the tattoo cover up, which is which it starts out kind of irreverent, but then the emotional weight behind it makes it beautiful and heartbreaking and you know that's something the show nearly always got that balance exactly right and leavened with the slight bit of humor that when she's explaining that she thought the wu-tang symbol was a phoenix really she refers to them as the wu-tang bang the wu-tang bang (laughs) which is just like a nice funny little joke in the midst of a story of her saying like oh when i was at my darkest lowest ebb i got a tattoo (laughs) because i was just so sad yeah Uh, which is very very, very clever uh, on the part of the, the writers but, and played beautifully by Carrie Coon, who, again, I think uh, should be kind of more recognised for how good she is in this. But I guess, like, between this and the, se- the third season of Fargo and that Spielberg movie she's in, she seems to be um, shooting up the, the, the ladder very, very rapidly. I think a lot of people picked her out as their favourite part of Gone Girl. Mm. Oh, yeah, she was great. Um, yeah, playing the sister. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the things as well in terms of the, the show's relationship to Lost, mm-hmm. uh, I think one of the, the, the things about it as well is the, the finale, because like Lindelof himself said, you know, I've been through the ringer when it comes to ending a show, particularly yeah. a show that has a lot of ongoing plots and mysteries and saying that he wanted to get the finale right this time. And I don't have that many problems with the finale of Lost, except yeah, the last like, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, 
like the only problem with it is that the ending seems to be the real island was the friends we made lost the what, along the way that's <laughs> that's kind of how it ends up kind of feeling which feels kind of pat for I the ending of a the obsession with finales is kind of ridiculous it's so rare that the finale episode of the show ends up being your favorite episode of the show um and yeah. lots of shows just end i mean i think lost did a did a pretty good job of ending a show like that um, yeah. I think people people should have realised a lot earlier on that not everything was going to be explained. Maybe they just weren't used to TV like that. But um, science fiction, good science fiction isn't about explaining everything and every mystery having an answer. That's never been what it's about. Um, that there has to be mystery left, or else what's what's the point? And there have to be threads hanging. Um, with a few very rare exceptions, um, I was I, who shared it? it was one of our mutual friends shared it on on Facebook where you there's a brilliant widget that will make graphs of every show's IMBD rating individually oh, yeah. by episode. So you can, you can see um, how they go up and down. And I think, I think there were, it was interesting. A couple of exceptions. I think maybe the six feet under finale was the highest rated episode, but yeah, um, that sounds about right. But it, but it's very rare for that to be the case. And, um, and I, and I did check lost and my favorite episode is the highest rated episode, the constant, the mm. best episode of lost objectively. So, Yep. Uh, you could watch the constant as an entirely self-contained 45 minutes of television. Um, you know, who cares whether the finale makes everyone happy? It's not its job to. Yeah, and it, and also in terms of good science fiction, you say it's not really about explaining things. It's also, but good stuff is also about exploring things. And that's what Lost was. It was exploring yeah. the lives of these characters. It was exploring these different sci- uh, science fiction concepts. You know, yeah. like Lindelof and Coos basically used it as a kind of um, jumping off point for them to do everything that they love in sci-fi over yeah, six years. Absolutely. Um, and, and ultimately that was a show, you know, again, as naff as, as you say, it is almost laughable, but it was a show about people and about relationships and that's what that finale was about. And yeah, and, and that felt tamely right. This finale, however. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was, they went into it knowing the weight of, of a, doing a finale to a show that is kind of fervently loved that has a lot of, of mysteries. And what I really loved about it from the off was that it pretty much said straight away, yeah, we're not going to explain what happened to everyone. Like, all the people who disappeared just disappeared. What this finale is going to be about is about the relationship between Nora and Kevin. And even though it takes a big time jump, which in and of itself is, you know, quite a, a bold move to make to take these characters and throw them 20, 30 years into the future. You know, it explores the impact of what they went through together um, in a way which is really kind of delicate and sweet and heart-wrenching. And it's kind of, it's, it's wonderful to think that literally two episodes before that, you have the most powerful man in the world. Like, you know, it's it's such a huge change in what the show is trying to do in such a short space of time. Yeah, I mean, it was very clever that it that it focused on 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 really just on, on Kevin and Nora. I think you're right. I think to put something that was that was a lot bigger in scope being the episode before, to redo something that people really liked, it was, you know, it was essentially a sequel to International Assassin. And it was lots of fun. And Patty was back and Meg was back and Evie was back, you know. And, and you know, we'd had to an extent resolution for all the other characters to some degree or another before that, you know, Nora had said goodbye to Matt. You know, we'd seen perhaps Laurie commit suicide. Did we ever find out she had or she hadn't? No, she hadn't, uh, actually, because 
Yeah, Nora phones her. Phones her. But, you know, she had a resolution to her story. They, they'd sort of done a lot of that in the previous six episodes, which allowed them the freedom um, in the finale to just focus on on, on Kevin and, and Nora. And, and it was very, very, very successful. I, I particularly liked Justin Theroux's performance, actually. I know Carrie Coon gets, rightly so, all the plaudits for her amazing work in this show. But there was something about Justin Theroux's boundless enthusiasm when he turns mm. up and he's pretending, you know, that, that, that nothing's happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And he's just, he's so desperate to have a do-over. He's trying to give her that opportunity to say, ah, let's forget about everything that's happened. Yeah, and, and I think the show has such a wonderful balance with that plot, which is that it could be creepy and gaslighting-y, which essentially is, is actually what it is. He is essentially trying to convince her that he has no memory of, or he's kind of going through the motions of saying, hey, we met once in Yeah, I don't think Mapleton. he was trying to trick her. I thought he was trying to say, let's, let's pretend this is what happened. But, but from her perspective, it's a weird and creepy thing to do. Yeah, I guess so. I found it uh, charming. <laughs> <laughs> she 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 seems very scared by it for well, most of the hour though. No. I really like uh, Justin Three. <laughs> but you know, he his performance is it you know, it is there's that delicate balance where she is a little freaked out by it and tries to run away and he is like playing it with a like a real kind of sweetness and vulnerability. Yeah, like a because he talks about the fact he had a heart attack, which suggests that his immortality or whatever is no longer a factor yeah. he's just kind of like he's a he's an old guy in his kind of 50s or 60s who's uh, on the other side of the world coming after the woman he loves yeah. and it's just like it is it is like a genuinely very sweet romantic episode where one half is has tried so hard to get away from this guy and they're at times very toxic relationship and him saying hey that's you know we were really good for each other but I understand that I really fucked up everything, <laughs> which he admitted at the end of the previous episode to uh, to his dad. Um, yeah, yeah there is there is something very kind of sweet about it. Yeah, it was like he was trying to create his own alternate timeline. Yeah, just through yeah, sheer force uh, which, of will. Uh... <laughs> uh, and also, I think like you and I have talked about this uh, through Twitter. I think probably yeah. uh, we were talking about the fact that. Um, the the finale kind of hinges upon this sequence where Nora is describing what happened to her when she through the with the scientists went through to the other side supposedly. Yeah, and I think I'm just it, really thick. I think <laughs> I just take face value. <laughs> but she kind of like describes everything she did and traveling around the world for years and years and years to find her family, her missing family. And when she saw them, she's like, Oh, her husband and her two kids have like settled down and formed a family with a different woman. And she didn't, and she decided to leave and she met a guy who built a machine for her to come back and all this sort of stuff. And it's wonderfully played by Carrie Coon and, and brilliantly, they don't show any of the stuff she's describing. It's just all her kind of talking about it. And I think uh, you and I were talking about it and, the thing about it is that if it is taken literally, it's an insane story to tell. Because as you pointed out, no mother no. having been separated from her children in the most horrifying way would, when presented with a chance to go and see them again, say, oh no, 
yeah, they seem happy without me. Completely rationalise it and go, oh, they seem happy. Uh, yeah, right. the, the, a physical urge wouldn't overtake you and you'd just run to them. But I, I did feel stupid after I talked to you about it because <laughs> I just... Also, I mean, to, to say that it's a ridiculous story and it's not very credible, it's also mm. in The Leftovers. Yes. Uh, so it's completely credible. Uh, in terms I mean, of, it, it definitely could have happened within this universe, a hundred percent. Yeah. In terms of like plot and the science behind it all, yeah. But yeah, in terms of like the the thing about the leftovers, it was a show that was grounded in real human emotions, and that story hinges on a very not human yeah. kind of response. Which is why when I when I when I sat and listened to that story, as you know, we're we're essentially Kevin being told that story, mm. and. Uh, and I just bought it. I think maybe I'm just, maybe I'm, maybe I'm like Kevin, <laughs> and I'm, I'm an enthusiastic optimist, and I, and I just believed what she said. And then, of course, as soon as you said, "Oh no, but you're not supposed to think that it really happened," then I, of course, learnt that that's the overarching, <laughs> uh, widely held belief, and I think makes a lot more sense that that none of that actually happened. Yeah, I think emotionally that is that's an explanation obviously like Lindelof is never going to tell us or Perotta they're not going to tell us which is true because the whole point of the scene is not whether or not what she says is true it's that Kevin believes her anyway exactly and I just felt like I was Kevin in that scene I was compelled by Carrie Coon's beautiful performance by this wonderful story although I was like that's ridiculous she would go to her kids Uh, it's the same way I felt when I watched Close Encounters for the first time you know, people mm. don't just leave their children. <laughs> yeah. And Steven Spielberg has said he would never make that film now with that ending. Now he's got kids. There's no way he would just get on that spaceship and leave his kids. Ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and uh, very sorry, I've ruined the end of Close Encounters for everybody. <laughs> but in, in much the same way, that, that hit a bum note for me. After realising afterwards that, that at the very least there's ambiguity about mm. whether she went over to the other side um, where 98% of the population disappeared, then, yeah, that doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't matter. And what, just, God, that was just the most beautiful story. Yeah, and, and it does conjure up, like, in the dying moments of the show, the, like this absolutely horrifying alternate reality. I want to watch <laughs> that we... TV show, yeah. Where we've, where we've all been thinking of, like, oh, it's terrible that 2% of the population disappeared without explanation. It's like... What if you were the two percent and you were given this largely empty world in which you had to try and figure out how to live? Yeah, uh, yeah, and the, and and that was lovely as well that she said that you know, and obviously again, it's obviously not real. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> stupid. It's a way of her imagining that you know that her family in that version are the lucky ones because they all got to stay together. Yeah. And maybe her way of excusing either the scientific experiment failing and her being taken in by grifters or her backing out of it at the last minute and feeling like for years this sense of regret and cowardice that she didn't go through with it just to see what would have happened. Yeah, it's clearly Uh, a story she's told herself a thousand times um, to make herself, you know, it's a rationalisation, make herself feel better about what would have happened under any circumstances, where of course we don't know what would have happened. Um, I feel like it's crazy that we've... I think it's my fault that we've talked about season one quite a lot, but you know, <laughs> when season three is so much more interesting, the finale is... It is interesting, but it seems crazy that we haven't talked about 
lions or orgies let's talk about the lion let's talk about the lion that one was a a great episode as well the it's a matt 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 world yeah another great title where matt goes to australia along with like pretty much the rest of the cast apart from Nora and the two Kevins who are already there, they will travel over to Australia to find Kevin because they believe that he's a central part of a coming apocalypse and that they need to be they need to get him back to uh Mapleton or maybe to Jardin. They need to get him back to America essentially. I think it's Jardin, yeah. For the anniversary of the, the, the sudden departure. And they, they get on this ferry which, which uh is being overrun by a like a a furry convention or some sort of sex orgy, essentially. No, they, yeah, they worship a... this lion, and I can't remember what the lion's called. He's got a really good name. Um, uh, but yes, he's like a sexy, lecherous lion, and they all want to like, yeah. emulate the lion. Yeah, uh, and he encounters uh, Bill Camp, who uh, appears throughout the show as an Australian man named David Burton, who may or may not be God. And uh, <laughs> he... So beats the shit out of Matt and then Matt ties into a chair and confronts him with all of his existential questions. Uh, and it's such a wonderfully strange and bizarre and ambitious episode of television because it has all of this, these kind of crazy factors being thrown in there. Like it's a sex party on a ferry, there's a lion, this guy may be God, but it is really all about Matt interrogating his fear of death as he finds out that his, his cancer that he had as a child has, recur- has come back. Mm. And his question of what the the universe means if he's going to die and all this sort of stuff, and it is like a it, accent aside, it is a tour de force by Christopher Eccleston. But then just ends on a full on gag, essentially, as God gets yeah. by a lion. <laughs> yeah, incredible. it's very much like that um, se- that segment of of Louis, where he's like rescuing the woman who's pregnant, and then it turns out that she just had a really big fart. It's kind of. <laughs> All like building that. up to, but yeah, that is a that is a fantastic end. Um, there's there's just I think you could just talk about you could I mean and I'm sure there are lots of podcasts that do, but certainly season three deserves at least an hour per episode to talk about mm. a show with so much depth and humour. Uh, yeah, and it's just so innovative. Um, and I you know I haven't seen. Uh, the, the, the new Twin Peaks, yeah, I will watch it, but um, everyone is saying that it's the most bold thing that's ever been on television. And I haven't watched it yet, so I don't know. But if it's if it is bolder than The Leftovers, then The Leftovers has got to be pretty fucking close. Yeah, I I've been thinking about that comparison after you and uh, our mutual friend Adam were talking about it on Facebook. Well, me and Adam just disagree on everything, so. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that's the kind of the, the cornerstone of <laughs> many friendships that. Uh, we all seem to have with each other. <laughs> um, but, like, I've been trying to think about... And, and for me, it's, like, trying to compare, like, pet sounds with, like, the disintegration loops or something. Like, you're talking about something like The Leftovers Season 3, which I think is the one of the most ambitious things I've ever seen operating within the realms of TV as we understand yeah. it. Yeah. And then you have Twin Peaks season three, which is like David Lynch being given a shitload of money yeah. to do something completely avant-garde and that exists outside of the realm of what That's television great. is supposed to be. That's and really like, helpful. They're both so wildly kind of different in what their aims are. It's crazy to try and compare them. But and I can still both. argue it though, can't I? After watching the kids, uh, what's braver? What's really braver, hey? 
Yeah, I, 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 I would probably tend to think that what The Leftovers was doing was brave. Yeah. Because David, <laughs> David Lynch is essentially just doing what he would do anyway. Yeah. It just happens to be that he's convinced Showtime to give him a lot of money. I can't believe The Leftovers got away with it. I still can't. Yeah. Um, and the more they got away with, the better it got. And I'm, I'm glad it's over. And I'm glad it ended so well. Yeah. And it's also wonderful to see that they were given the chance to make a third season, even though it was in doubt. And seemingly, like, Damon Lindelof seems to credit it solely to Matt Zoller-Seitz writing a, an essay essentially saying why there should be a third season of The Leftovers. Because it went up on Vulture and then, like, an hour later he got a phone call from someone saying, hey, you've been picked up. Wow. Uh, Whether or not that's true or not, um, I do feel like the overwhelming critical support for the second season was why they were given a chance to do a third season and why they resolved to kind of make it as good and exciting and audacious as it ended up being. Yeah, absolutely. It just feels like one of those things, it's just a gift, you know, like people didn't need Mm. to do it. I can't imagine it made huge amounts of revenue for anyone. Um, Yeah. it, It just feels like a wonderful gift of the show. And it made me like everyone in it um you know a, a lot more um mm. but specifically justin through who i am now very excited to see what everything he does yeah between this co-writing zoolander 2 i know is... <laughs> i know he's such an interesting character isn't he um yeah and didn't he also co-write tropic thunder yes Yes, he did. And he wrote, I think he didn't, he, he wrote Wanderlust as well, I think. Or, or in, and he's in that, but I think maybe he wrote part of that. I don't know. And, 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 and then he yeah. had Jennifer Aniston on that film, and then he married Jennifer Aniston. Isn't it interesting? And he's, and he's Louis Theroux's cousin. Yeah. He's a really interesting guy. I'm fascinated. Yeah. And, he, and he has the world's greatest abs, but that's just. <laughs> I think that's, Lindelof has been saying that's going to be part of the Emmy campaign is that if people vote for him, he'll just keep posting pictures of a naked Louis, of naked Justin Theroux. <laughs> not, not Louis Theroux. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's going to be part of his Scientology movies. <laughs> okay, so uh, we end the show uh, every week with recommendations, uh, things that people should check out. So what have you got to recommend to the listeners? Um, so, um, as I've been... Well, one of the reasons that I'm doing a, a, a wrestling-themed day of podcast is because Wrestling is very much in the cultural uh, air at the minute. Uh, mm. I'm sure everyone's already seen Glow on Netflix, which if you haven't, I'll recommend because I thought it was wonderful. Um, but I've been taking a real deep dive in, into wrestling and uh, watching lots of interesting things. But uh, if you enjoyed Glow, I would recommend a documentary on Netflix uh, called Glow, The Story of the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Uh, it's a 2012 documentary and if you thought Glow seemed uh, unbelievable, you should really watch what the actual Glow was like <laughs> because it is a hundred times more bonkers. And those women are a hundred times more extraordinary. Um, and I thoroughly recommend it. Cool. I'll check that out. I just finished watching Glow the series this morning. So I really feel the need to kind of see what the, the reality was like. Uh, but yeah, Glow. The show is also really Yeah, I, I also enjoyed uh, WrestleMania 17 on the WWE <laughs> Network. You've got access to that or some know someone who'll give you the password? That's, that's, <laughs> I, I, yes, I've been watching a lot of wrestling. <laughs> Sounds great, yeah. A lot of people at my work are super into wrestling. Uh, and it's great to see uh, their enthusiasm for it. And, and it. and Glow did remind me that as a kid, like when I was six or seven, I was so into 
WWF. It was crazy. It is. It's just. It's just fun. You know. I'm really. Yeah. I'm, I'm. I think I'm gonna go and see some live wrestling at the end of this month, and I'm. I'm really looking forward to it. That sounds. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that uh, I watched. I meant to watch last year when it was in cinemas and didn't because I kept thinking, am I in the mood to watch a two and a half hour movie about priests in feudal Japan? <laughs> um, that answer was always no. Um, but I did finally watch Martin Scorsese's Silence, which uh, was a lot more compelling and not fun because uh, it's about feudal priests. <laughs> it's about priests in feudal Japan and it is at times very bleak and brutal and kind of uh, horrible, but um, it's a lot more compelling than I thought to be. Um, Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield, although Andrew Garfield is pretty much the only character on screen for, for much of it, are um, play the two priests who go to Japan to find their mentor, played by Liam Neeson, who they receive a letter from saying that he has renounced God and everyone has no idea what happened to him because it's the you know the 1600s so letters take a really long time so he's been in Japan for eight years and they don't know what's happened to him and they kind of search through the countryside and there are moments of of, of humor to it there is a there's a sequence where they have spent weeks living in a coal shed and they decide to sit out uh, in the sun for a few minutes and they realize they're being watched by peasants and they both kind of like scramble up to run back into the shed and it's a very funny moment of visual <laughs> comedy of these two lanky, emaciated priests just trying to hobble back to uh, that. That is also they're both very thin. <laughs> they're very thin yeah, in it. Very, it's kind very of weird. Boys. Um, but it's it's kind of a really uh, interesting movie about um, the notion of faith and what it will drive people to do and clashes of ideas and different philosophies. Andrew Garfield is fantastic in it, and I'm now doubly angry that he was nominated for Hacksaw Ridge, which he wasn't very good in. Oh, he's such uh, a creep in that film. Oh. <laughs> yeah, talk about romances that don't play as well as uh, the author intended. Oh, so um, creepy. But uh, it's a it's a really great movie. It is it is long and it is about priests, so it is kind of uh, it's kind of an intense watch. But um, I was I was surprised by just how much I liked it, and so that's Silence. Thank you very much for coming on the show again, Zoe. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Zozrat. Uh, you can find King's Place at kingsplace.co.uk uh, and follow us on Twitter at King's Place where you'll find all the details about the London Podcast Festival and the London Podcast Festival presents Wrestling, which goes on sale at 12 o'clock uh, on Monday the 10th of July. Fantastic. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and also leave us a review. It helps people find us. You can follow us on Twitter, at SRS underscore podcast, and on Facebook. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>